The next virtual design clinic is on December 19th, 2018. VDCs are live virtual events where you attend for free and no one contacts you after unless you opt in. We're going to do some Ask Me Anything segments with a panel of industry experts. We'll hear presentations on continuous integration and continuous testing for networking, as well as the impact of NVMe over fabrics to network design and more. Celebrate the holiday change freeze by registering at packetpushers.net slash VDC. And now on with today's episode. In Priority Q154, we chatted with PC Drew about the challenges of standing up a fully operational network in the middle of nowhere. That's standard operating procedure for the military as they fulfill their combat and humanitarian missions around the world. In this episode, we're going to go deeper on one of the interesting facets of that conversation, satellite communications. That's right, PC Drew is back and he brought along a colleague, Evander Cook, to educate us on SATCOM. So, PC, starting with you, for those who maybe missed Priority Q154, would you briefly introduce yourself to the audience? Sure, no problem. Hey, everybody. I'm a major in the Marine Corps Reserve, and I've been a software engineer, network engineer, and Unix system administrator for about 20 years. And Evander Cook, nice to meet you. Would you do the same? Introduce yourself to the good folks listening. I certainly would. Hey, uh, good afternoon, everyone. My name is Evander Cook. I am a Chief Warrant Officer 3 in the active duty, and my current title is Director of Network Operations within one of our, our reserve stations in Brooklyn, New York. Lovely. Okay, guys, so we're going deep on SATCOM today. PC, again, this was uh, another one of your ideas to go deep on this, and it's really interesting stuff to me because story time. Back in the day, I spent some time with radio waves uh, when I was working on my ham radio license, but I never did follow through because because Morse code. I'm lazy. Uh, back This was 20 odd years ago, uh, and they don't even have a Morse code requirement today, but I, I digress. The things I remember from studying about that, higher frequencies would let you cram in more data, but you can't go as far with the signal. Longer wavelengths would let you go further and survive things like bounces off of buildings, but you can't get as much information in there. Do those tie to SATCOM as well? They absolutely do. So wavelengths, speed of sound, all of that is a huge factor in, in SATCOM. And I think the, the, the most critical part of that is we're talking about a much, much greater distance. So a lot of the geostationary satellites sit at about 35,000 kilometers from the Earth. And so it's a much greater distance and time it takes to get from the Earth to the satellite and then back down has to be part of that, that factor. Another part that you kind of alluded to is wavelengths, and, and we kind of group those wavelengths into different frequency bands so that we can develop and define equipment that operates at those frequency bands, as well as allocate some of those frequency bands for commercial use, military only, so on and so forth. And I think, Evander, you're going to take on some of the, the discussion of what frequency bands are, are pretty common in the SATCOM world. Is that right? Yep, I certainly do. I have it all queued up. <laughs> Lay it on us, my friend. So a quick disclaimer about the bands, right? Obviously, the higher the band, uh, the more sampling and cycle and associated power is required in order to facilitate a successful link establishment, especially when we start to get into the larger data rates. And we in the military, we operate primarily on a tri-band basis, right? So in order to really conceptualize the relationship between the cycles and the associated data rates, think about the the increase of speeds on CPUs, right? So more processes can occur, more memory is employed, and there is a larger power draw, right? And a corresponding heat that increases from the computer. These are really the same elements that are presented within each of the respective frequency bands and certain considerations that we need to make. The first of which is our X band, right? So our X out of the tri-band 
system that we use is the preferred band, right? It's the one that's least susceptible to the atmospheric conditions as well as weather. And it goes from an uplink spectrum from about anywhere from seven to nine gigahertz. The second of which is our KU band, AKA our commercial SATCOM. On the uplink side, which is primarily what I'm gonna speak to, that range is from anywhere from 12 to 14 gigahertz. KU band or commercial is starting to become increasingly more prevalent uh, throughout the world. And we particularly use it as a gap filler for our military spectrum. However, this does represent a, a you know, quite a significant uh, conundrum for us as it is highly sought and typically can be uh, procured without some of the, the red tape and without some of the layers of bureaucracy that we find um, associated with procuring military spectrum. And the last of that tri-band spectrum is the KA. Once again, KA on the uplink side goes from 18 to roughly about 27 gigahertz. Now, this is one of the highest uh, spectrum ranges that we use. And then obviously, it's least preferred because of its lack of performance during the inclement weather. You know, consider all these frequencies are being sampled at billion times per second. So obviously, and all of them operating within the, uh, the gigahertz spectrum range. Okay, so so gigahertz. If this is a terrestrial application, in other words, we're not shooting the the, the light beam into space. We're trying to shoot it, you know, terrestrial to, to two different points. Those kinds of bands typically are really short distance applications. They don't penetrate. They don't penetrate barriers very well. So the the use case here is you get to cram a lot more data into them because you've got a lot more waves to work with where you can put bits in, and then. You're aiming them towards space where, in theory, you're, you don't have any objects that you're shooting through, except, as you mentioned, weather, when weather comes up. Uh, and is that why this actually works at such a high frequency? Well, uh, I, I think that's something that we're going to dovetail in a little bit later in terms of trying to explain in greater detail how we're able to, to get some of these higher data rates. But think of when you start talking about HF radios, right? And you start talking about sacrificing distance for data rates, right? Whereas the least amount of cycles or the least amount of sampling you get, the wavelength is able to travel faster, right? Because it's being uninterrupted and it's being sampled at a at a lower frequency per second. So obviously the more that you're that you're sampling, right, distance is going to be impacted. It's sort of an inverse effect as what you would have as some of the lower uh, frequency spectrums. Hmm. Okay. And you you kind of hit it on the head when you talked about you know obstacles being in the way. Uh, the the shorter the wavelength, the less obstacles things can penetrate. The longer the wavelength, the more obstacles it can penetrate. So if you do uh, communication under the sea through water to a submarine or to some some asset down below, you actually use very 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 low frequency wavelengths. If you're going and you have direct visibility line of sight to an asset, whether it's terrestrial or SATCOM, you can use much higher frequency, but then to get the distance, you might need to add more power and more gain on the signal. So what kind of power are we talking about to drive these signals that are going all the way up into space to hundreds or maybe thousands of miles, depending on the type of orbit that the satellite is in? Right. So I would tell you um, they range. And some of our SATCOM on the move systems, we're talking about trying to power low gain, low size, low aperture antennas with two 12 volt batteries 
all the way to having dedicated pads with commercial grade generators with 400 watts HPAs on it. So it really varies uh, depending on your configuration and obviously your uh, uh, your mission objectives. And and just to clarify that the terminology there, the the HPA is a high power amplifier. So as the signal is is getting ready to go from the radio to the antenna itself, it actually gets the power gets increased in, in, on that signal so that it can transmit at the wavelength and the power that it needs to when it's going out of the antenna. But inside the the radio itself, it's not necessarily operating at that wavelength. And that's an excellent uh, distinction, PC. Um, and just as PC mentioned earlier, really conceptually and theoretically, there isn't much different between your single channel radios and your SATCOM systems. However, this is one piece of equipment and this is one component that does differentiate between the two. Having that HPA requirement um, allows you to get into those more increased rates and to reach those uh, those more further distances. So we're going to talk a little bit uh, later about uh, how satellites look at the earth and, and where their signal covers. But one important distinction is th- these satellites are broadcasting and receiving kind of at all times all around the earth. And from a a United Nations level or world um, regulatory policy level, every country owns their own airspace in terms of um, resources for frequency allocation and things like that. That is considered a national resource for every country on earth. So if we take a satellite system to a foreign country to do an exercise or an operation, there's a lot of regulations and policies that we have to follow to actually request landing rights to be able to terminate that satellite connection to send and receive in that location. And oftentimes we end up having to pay that host nation to not only deconflict the frequencies that that are being used, but also to allow us to use it. So Evander was talking about commercial KU, KA, C-band, some other uh, bands that are commercial, we have to do within the military and within the federal organizations in the U.S., we have to deconflict a lot of the users on that and 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 share that. But then when we go international, we have to re-coordinate that with them every single time to do that same kind of deconfliction in that country. And this is the standard problem with any sort of uh, radio wave airspace management. You know, the FCC in the U.S. deals with that for all different kinds of frequency bands, and including, to some degree, unlicensed spectrum. So wireless 2.4 gigahertz and, and 5 gigahertz, uh, that's a, a, something that is a, a known problem. If you fire up your some kind of a wireless interface and look at the SSIDs that are out there, you're in conflicted airspace with everyone else that's broadcasting with their wireless access points that are out there in that unlicensed spectrum, because anybody can do that. That's okay. But when you get into licensed spectrum, and as uh, as you were mentioning, PC, governed uh, spectrum, because you're in some kind of a host nation, right, you're getting permission so that uh, your frequency, which you're broadcasting on, isn't clobbering anyone else. Right, right. And, and, and I know that PC could attest to this, but from my perspective, this is, this is one of the areas in which I, I'm extremely jealous of my, of my network and my system counterparts in that I am expected to start planning as a SATCOM engineer months in advance because more than likely, I'm not going to have the priority that gives me to to stop at the drop of a dime and request certain resources. And more importantly, I don't necessarily have a global understanding of what's going on around me, nor am I not aware of uh, coalition exercise, humanitarian efforts, and other strategic missions, right? So for SATCOM resources, time is always of the essence, and it's always better to get your request 
um, out there as far in advance as humanly possible. So. Hmm. All right. I want to understand bandwidth. So we talked about, we're up in the gigahertz spectrum for these different bands. You mentioned uh, C, K, A, and K, U, if I remember right. What sorts of bandwidth, what kind of throughput can I get out of a SATCOM link? So there, there's a, a favorite phrase in the Marine Corps called it situational dependent. <laughs> uh, and and that's that's exactly the non-answer that I'm going to give you here. Yeah, that's very much the consultant answer, yes. <laughs> yeah. to, to give you the short answer, and then I'll get into a little bit of longer answer, and, and Evander will jump on it too. You know, you're talking about in the under one megabit per second, up to 10, 15, 20, maybe uh, approaching 30 or 40 megabits per second, depending on the antenna size and the power. And and as Evander said, the priority that you've received in this kind of congested space. That's the that's really the the kind of area we're talking about here. Which doesn't doesn't sound like a lot for for gigahertz uh, frequency range, but uh, does latency factor into this? The fact that you're going so far and back. Where, you know, if it's a TCP, some sort of acknowledged communication, does that impact the throughput? Or are we talking uh, a theoretical maximum throughput when you talk about roughly a megabit per second to maybe 30 to 40 megabits per second? Well, so that's a great question. I think the, the, the answer lies in the distinction of the terminology. So when we're talking about throughput, then latency absolutely has probably the largest uh, role to play in that. But when we talk about just capacity itself, what is the theoretical capacity or even the actual capacity, maximum capacity of that link, that specific link based on, in this case, SATCOM, a ground terminal in a certain location in the world, talking to a satellite in one location, and then that satellite talking to another ground station uh, somewhere else in the world, that specific link is related to the carrier frequency, the noise or interference and, and that's when we start to get into this concept of what's called a link budget, a satellite link budget. And if you picture this terminal somewhere, let's say point A in the world on the ground, talking to a satellite, and then that same satellite talking to something else, point B in the world, you have the antenna size and the power output on point A's radio. You have free space path loss, which is the, the loss of signal from that ground terminal all the way across that 35,000 kilometers to the satellite. You have the wavelength that's being used. And then on that other side of the link from the satellite back down to point B, you have free space path loss, you have power, and you have uh, antenna size. All of those factors are, make up what's called a, a satellite link budget. And if you actually, there's equations for this and all that. If you do that planning and do that math, you can determine what is required, how what the frequency size is, uh, how little noise you can or how much noise you can accept in that link. And if you think of interference as noise, that's a very uh, common example. If there's a lot of other terminals around you that are sending and receiving on similar frequencies, that's going to have a a big impact on how much bandwidth you can or, or capacity you can handle. So then when we get into specific bandwidth stuff, we're talking about like the Shannon-Hartley theorem of capacity, which is the relationship between bandwidth and the signal-to-noise ratio. And we take that information and we talk about modulation. So so let's back up a second here. So, okay, so if we got bandwidth as related to a signal-to-noise ratio, the noisier that signal is, I'm assuming the more often we would have corruption in a datagram, a frame, whatever the unit is that would be being sent between you know, the, the ground station and the satellite and back. 
if that is a corrupted, I'll just say datagram because I don't know exactly what the correct term here is for yep. in sat, satcom. We would need to retransmit, I'm assuming. And so, so actually, that's that's a question. Is there that sense of some kind of a, a CRC check or something so that the receiver knows it got a frame that was uncorrupted? Yeah. So the, let, let's talk about this in terms of the OSI model, right? It's a, it's a great framework to, to reference this. So layer one at the physical layer, we're talking about the radio wave itself. So we're talking frequencies, we're talking about power, we're talking about interference within the air and things like that. Layer two is where we, the data link layer is where we start to say, how can I protect the data that is being transmitted across layer one and provide a little bit of error correction so that I don't have to go up to the layer three, layer four, layer five to have those more expensive error correction things. So the the first opportunity we get at layer two to do error correction is how we modulate and demodulate the data. So in SATCOM or really any high throughput radio communication, you're talking about uh, phase shift keying, amplitude shift keying, different types of uh, modulation like amplitude modulation. So some of that terminology is QPSK, 16 QAM, 8 QAM. All those things are different examples of modulation that have error correction involved. And the purpose of that modulation is to say, I have one bit of data that I need to send from layer two to layer one. And I'm going to turn that bit into some number of symbols that ends up translating to uh, frequencies and amplitude and all of that kind of stuff on the radio wave itself. Right. So essentially modulation is necessary for provisioning the baseband data and the circuits for encoding and transmission over that awaiting analog signal, right, which is the RF signal. So this is paramount because the signals that derive from the backend devices, i.e. the routers, the converters, and the inline encryption devices, they typically function at much lower frequency ranges, right? Uh, usually within the L-band uh, frequency, right? Which is anywhere from 1.1 kilohertz all the way to 2 kilohertz. And consider that at SATCOM, we typically use, like PC mentioned, we use phase shift keying for our modulation, right? That's the way that we signal during the cycles uh, that occur within this frequency shifting that it's now time to go from a one to zero or vice versa, right? And to essentially or effectively flip that 90 to 45 degrees, whichever modulation is chosen out of the ones that he specified earlier. Now, this is this phase shift keying is what we use in SATCOM as opposed to the amplitude and the frequency variants, right, that are that are usually staples in the single channel radio system, right? So the modulation will really determine how many bits and subsequent data are processed during a given phase shift or symbol, right? So you were you were asking about, well, how many things iterate in the amount of things that that you know that you can do. And once again, I'm gonna give you the consultant answer. It depends, right? It depends <laughs> on you know, it depends on your antenna gain. It depends on how steady or how consistent your power source is, right? Is it short power? Is it generator power, right? Is it some janky UPS, right, that, you know, you pulled out of an ISO container that you're hooking up? And also, if those factors that are contributed to link budget weren't enough, it also depends on, once again, what kind of high-powered amplifier do you have? What kind of modem do you have, right? Is it able to do the data rates that you're looking for, right? And 
And all these factors go into really determining what data rate you can do, because like many things in life, and SATCOM is certainly no different. There is no best of all worlds situation or scenario out there. There's going to be a trade-off of some sort, whether it's going to be power, whether it's going to be money that it costs to fund all these things that you're asking for, whether it's going to be speed. So, so you're really rolling a dice on one or the other. Then going back to what you were saying, PC, you guys have formulas for this. There's enough theory and math behind this that provide you give it give it enough numerical inputs with what you know, you can come up with a pretty reasonable estimate of what your link budget's actually going to be. Yeah, when you when you know the specific details of what satellite you're communicating to, like by name, for example, you can find it in the sky. Um, if it's low on the horizon, and that means it's farther away, you might have more obstruction. You can calculate all these things and, and say, okay, this is what I can expect. So if I'm allocated a certain amount of symbols per second from the, from the satellite and, and, and the people that control that, and, and some of these other factors, like I'm, I'm told to use QPSK and some of these other things, I can actually mathematically determine for that specific link what my expected or even theoretically a theoretical maximum bandwidth is going to be. You know, it might be one megabit per second based on all of those factors. And then right. if I had been given a different modulation like a BPSK instead of QPSK, I could calculate that as, oh, this might be 768 kilobits per second instead of one meg or something like that. Right, right. So what so what PC is referring to is there's an administrative process that's referred to as a satellite access request, right? And it is a document. Sometimes it comes in electronic form, right? And you're submitting this to the satellite engineers, right? You know, that work up at DC or, or somewhere where an enterprise service gateway is located, right? And they are mapping out the parameters for your requested link, right? And this is important because, you know, the shelf life for uh, a given satellite is anywhere from 10 to 15 years, right? Depending on when it was made and depending on, on which orbit it's located, right? But it has a finite amount of resources aboard the payload, right? And based on whatever parameters you've, you've outlined in this SAR, if you are considered what's, what's referred to as a disadvantaged terminal and they don't have the payload or the juice isn't worth the proverbial squeeze to put you on side <laughs> on top of that transponder, right? You will not be allowed to access, right? You will be denied or at the very least you will be redirected to, to another satellite that's able to accommodate you. Well, that, that, that's actually a really good point because contextually what we're pointing out here, you're not the only person using that satellite. You're building one link to, to this satellite, but there's a whole lot of other people that could be standing up links to this satellite as well. And someone's got to manage the resources of that satellite. So, so that satellite, there's got to be some function on that thing that allows it to split up its resources amongst all the different folks that are standing up links to it. Precisely. You, in SACOM, you will learn and, and have yourself humbled very quickly on where you truly fit in the grand scheme of things of global SACOM hmm. and resource requests. So, so if we put some like specific stuff to that, um, if if my unit wants to go out and do some training in some some part of California in preparation for you know whatever real world thing they might do in the future, that is the lowest priority, and so that means that they might get it, they might not. And they may have to change their kind of exercise parameters or exercise dates or things like that to accommodate the satellite connection if the satellite connection is what's most important for that exercise. 
the the corollary to that is if you are in a combat zone if you are a special operations force doing a mission if you're a humanitarian assistance disaster response mission you know a hurricane that that hits a, a certain area of the world um, you will receive probably the number one priority and so you might actually kick other people off the satellite um, ships that are out in the world, um, naval ships that are out, you know, kind of cruising around doing whatever they have higher priority than everybody else, because they are actually alone and unafraid in these other areas. And that's their only means of communication. So priority is a big factor in terms of what you're doing and why. And that, that goes to that satellite access request that Evander was talking about. But it's not a one-to-one relationship, right? A satellite in the sky can have several links at the same time stood up to it, or, or is it actually one-to-one? You know, we sort of mentioned it a couple of times, right? Without really explaining what it is or what its corresponding role in the grand scheme of things, right? But, but technically, um, a transponder represents the satellite's critical transmitting and receiving components, right? Which facilitate the Earth terminals interfacing, right? Whether it's horizontal or whether it's vertical polar uh, polarization that it's using, right? So logically, right? And I prefer to use this highway analogy, right, to really describe the function of a transponder, right? But think of a satellite as um, having a hierarchical structure to it, right? The actual satellite is a state, right? So think of the satellite as as California, uh, per se, right? The transponder is an interstate, right? Whether it be the I-5, the I-8, or the I-15, right? And those interstates represent major roads to enter California, the metaphorical satellite that is. So each could serve as a metaphorical transponder. So consider that the interstates are multi-laned and these lanes range from anywhere from three to five lanes. Those lanes represent the partition carriers. So as you were referring to, Ethan, how many people could fit on there? Is it a one-to-one? No, it's not. Those one-to-one you know, partitions are, are referred to as carriers, uh, which provide each user their own lane on the interstate or the transponder in order to access the transponder, right? So, okay. So, so it's got, it's splitting up its resources among different uh, folks. You've, you've given the metaphor of different lanes. Is right. it in fact a unique lane or is it actually one signal that's uh, time slices and everybody gets a time slice? I think that would be the best way to describe it uh, conceptually as, as well as physically. Okay. It represents, it represents the aggregated, representation of lanes. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, right. and, and we can take that in addition to just having that. So w- once you've divided that into a single carrier or a single lane, you can further subdivide that into multiple access technology. So we have TDMA and FDMA or time division, multiple access and frequency division, multiple access. So now you're talking about on that same carrier, how many actual terminals can be on it and communicating at the same time. If you're in a TDMA environment, it's it's very much like Ethernet, right? Everybody gets a, a, a time slice and collisions are detected and things like that. And, and there's a master that is kind of ensuring that those things don't overlap with each other. And so TDMA would take a carrier signal, divide it up into time slices, and you're effectively limiting the amount of bandwidth or throughput, bandwidth and throughput that a single terminal can have based on its time allocation. 
Whereas frequency division multiple access allows you to say, I have a single carrier frequency, but my communication is going to be separated by multiple frequencies off of that carrier frequency. And so you could have multiple terminals or multiple throughput streams going across those frequencies as part of this multiple access technology. This is really interesting in the sense that you mentioned satellites have a oh, 10 to 15 year lifespan, but the technology 10 to 15 years ago, I bet, is primitive compared to if it was a satellite that got launched today and what the radio infrastructure might be that was put on that thing. Is that true? Oh, certainly. Uh, you know, let me, you know, let me go back to, you know, talking about the transponder. So uh, the complexities, the things that they're doing up there, you know, whether it's, you know, the satellite that's orbiting in the you know, the heel at 35 clicks up there, it's quite impressive. Take, for example, the two types of transponders you have, right? You have you have the bent pipe, right? Which is simply, hey, whatever you get from the ground terminal, it's being redirected out the other side to uh, the other corresponding uh, just an end. And then you have what's called a processing uh, transponder, right? And the processing transponder is, you know, depending on what the link budget um, is designed for, right? It's it's not only performing the functions of its you know sister bent pipe, it's also inspecting the payload, it's processing the band, it's processing the frequency, the data rate, sometimes doing modulation conversion, and then in an effort to facilitate uh, global com- uh, communications, and it's spitting it back out in in less than a millisecond in most cases. So certainly the technology is increasing. Uh, there are some other, you know, exotic things that are happening out there that uh, uh, that I can't exactly speak on in this forum. But but certainly it's impressive out there, and and hence the reason why we try to be as efficient as humanly possible um, when using these finite resources to keep these things orbiting as long as humanly possible. Mm. You're, you're talking about space force there, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> uh, you got me. <laughs> Okay, so I, I want to set up another question here for you that goes back to we were talking about the the challenges of power having different levels of power at which we can uh, send and receive, and then signal quality dealing with that signal to noise ratio and so on. So let me set this up for you this way: uh, story time again. So so back in the day, I used to capture uh, analog radio signals from weather satellites and then decode them to view the pictures. And it, and this 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 goes back. Oh, gosh, 15, 20 years ago, they would work with scan lines, kind of like a fax transmission. Well, either you're dating yourself a little bit now, huh? I know, I know, I know. Um, well, okay. <laughs> so so I got in, in the habit of, of um, monitoring when satellite passes were going to be. So if the satellite was higher in the sky, I knew I was probably going to get a clearer picture than if the satellite was uh, passing very close to the horizon. And, and I imagine you guys have got to deal with this as well. So how, how do you deal with these kinds of, of signal quality issues? So I think the the first step is really to understand signal quality. And we're not going to cover all of that here, but as a SATCOM operator or as someone who is operating a network that rides across a satellite connection, it's really, really critical to be able to evaluate, numerically evaluate and quantify signal quality. And there's a lot of information out on the internet about that. Um, you know, what, what algorithms and what uh, formulas and, you know, what ratios and things like that determine good or bad signal quality. Um, one that is very commonly used is, is something that's called EBNO or energy per bit uh, as it was related to noise power. And there's a lot of words. I'm not going to go into it. Uh, <laughs> but most of the satellite modems and things like that can give you an actual EBNO number. And then you can compare that to high quality, low quality output and input on, on the like TCP side and things like that. 
And so when you're talking about signal quality and noise and power and all these things, I think the first step is to understand the interference around you. And a a great way to look at this is if you're in an office building that has a lot of uh, different companies next to each other and they're all running their own Wi-Fi network and they're all on channel one, you're competing (laughs) for quality in, uh, the closer you get to each of those other uh, uh, Wi-Fi networks that are not on the one that you're on, you may get kicked off, you may get packets lost, you know, all these other things. And so being able to measure signal quality at the space where you are, the point where you are on the earth is really, really important. Um, for SATCOM, hopefully interference is less of an issue because you're pointing hopefully directly at the satellite. Uh, and so when when Evander was talking about the satellite access request and, and when we get allocated a certain amount of bandwidth and we get certain uh, satellite and certain timeframes and all that stuff, we get information as um, all the details we need to connect to, to a specific satellite and a specific transponder. So we'll give that information to our, our Marines or soldiers, sailors or airmen to go out and actually set up the satellite antenna. And I remember one time we were setting one up. And we were having a lot of signal quality issues. We couldn't get a good link on the satellite. And, and there's some pretty basic things that you look at when you're, when you're uh, pointing a satellite somewhere. Number one is, is the satellite dish pointing at the satellite in the sky? Uh, and, and we know where the satellite is because it's geostationary. We'll, we'll talk about it a little bit later, but it means it sits kind of in the same spot in the sky. And uh, one of the factors we were given was elevation. And I asked uh, this Marine in this one example, I said, oh, you know, are you pointing at the right elevation? And he looked at me and he said, yeah, we're uh, 100 feet above sea level. What do you mean? And, and I started <laughs> laughing. I said, no, not elevation from sea level to where we're standing. Talking about elevation is how many degrees... <laughs> From pointing, you know, at the horizon up in the sky is the the antenna angled at? Is it a 45 degree angle? Is it a 10 degree angle? And he's like, oh, got it. And they looked at it and it was pointing nowhere near the satellite. Uh, so that is the number one thing that we have to consider when we're talking about SATCOM is you have to be pointing at the satellite. There's not a lot of error correction in pointing at the wrong thing. You're talking about a very tight beam then from what you're describing. So so if we're talking about a uh, a cheap Wi-Fi access point you just bought at your local big box store and it's got those rubber ducky style antennas, it's an omnidirectional radiation pattern. It looks kind of like a donut from most of the diagrams that I've seen. And if you stand it up, just kind of point the thing straight up and down you and, and put it roughly centrally in your house, you probably got okay coverage. This is a different animal. I mean, you're, you're, you're talking about a, a gigahertz beam, uh, a different, you know, a very tight wave that's being directed very specifically, um, you know, through, well, that, that, that dish, that curved dish, I suppose helps focus it. It, it does. And, and you have to think that the more you're off, the worse it gets because we're talking about 35 kilometers in the sky. So it's like walking 10 steps out of your house. And if you're walking a little bit to the left, you're only going to veer off course a little bit. But if you're walking a mile and you're perpetually veering off to the left, you're going to not end up at at the point where you you want to. Well, now you're talking about walking 35,000 kilometers. And if you're off by an inch, that ends up being miles Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) at at, at that satellite. Uh, And once again, gents, you know, trying to, you know, provide a little bit of distinction between the complexities of single channel radios and SATCOM, um, because of these complexities, this is why SATCOM-based systems um, have a, 
a little bit different structure. Um, I think I mentioned previously, we have three segments within SATCOM, right? You have the Earth segment, right, which is the actual ground satellites. You have the space segment, which is the satellite itself. And then you have the control segment, right? So it's because of this that all SATCOM links are required to call in to the control segment, right, which is, you know, appropriately named GMF control or SATCOM control in order to really walk it in. Because like, as PC said, uh, you know, one inch on the ground, you know, turns easily into 10 inches in space along the geo, along the geo orbit, right? And, and, and at that point, not only are you off, but you're likely broadcasting onto someone else's bird, right? And at that point, um, you know, fines are, are levied, right? In particular, if this is a commercial bird, right? And there's a service interruption. So this is a big deal. And because of that, um, you know, certain, certain precautions are made, certain tests um, are conducted to ensure that not only is um, are you focused on the right transponder aboard the right bird? But your signal is a, is a, as efficient as humanly possible before they grant you access to start transmitting. Yeah, so, so that, that's a great distinction. Um, because the satellite transponder is, transpo- is sending the carrier wave always, the satellite terminal on the ground locks onto that carrier wave and that's the the kind of process that Evander's talking about where somebody's on the phone with satellite control and they're watching this carrier wave and and reporting to each other the quality of, of receiving that carrier wave. And all of that is before any information is actually transmitted from the, the ground station up to the satellite because you have to make sure you're, you're talking on the same thing. So it's really just in receive mode for a little while until you you've locked on to the right connection, the right carrier wave, the right satellite, and then you can start transmitting. So PC, I've been waiting to make this connection uh, for some time now. And I think this is, this is the appropriate form. Would you say that peak and pole, which is, which is commonly referred to is a SATCOM equivalent to, to a three-way handshake? Yes, mm. but it's, it's it's longer than three ways. <laughs> it's like a thirty-seven million way handshake. Well, if it um, well if it's done right, then it can be done in three in three short steps. But. Sure, but it's never done right. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, as we as we learned in the previous podcast, we're a collection of professional amateurs. So it's like we're learning how to do this at every time. Uh, of course. But yeah, what Evander's talking about is is there's a couple of techniques that are commonly used. Uh, it's talked about by the satellite equipment vendors by, within the military and kind of anybody that operates these these terminals. Uh, Peak and pole is talking about power input and output and understand and, and monitoring that carrier wave and, and, and really kind of evaluating where you are on that. There's box scans and things like that where you actually try and find in the sky the carrier wave that you're looking for and, and, and sample it from different areas to make sure you're getting the highest quality carrier wave. And so all of that kind of goes into the setup, the, the turn on of the, the, the antenna itself. Something else you guys said a second ago I wanted to pick up on, and that is uh, power. If if I've got poor signal quality, I, it sounds like I don't just have the ability to crank up the power that I'm when I'm actually when I get permission to use the satellite. Uh, a p- power budget is part of what I'm what I'm allowed. It's it's like you knew what we were thinking because I, I tell you what you are certified <laughs> to be a satcom operator right now just because you you fundamentally understand that. Yeah. So <laughs> what we see the number like the number one thing that we see is 
more, more power, do it more. (laughs) (laughs) And it, it does a lot of bad things. You can blow up the transponder. You can blow up your own equipment. You you can really uh, harm uh, your radios because power has so many implications when we're talking about this equipment, right? Heat, um, you know, the capacity within the, the, the antenna itself to generate that type of power, sustained power over time. You can do a lot of terrible things with power um, that, that harms the equipment. But in addition to that, power adds noise, so the higher the power that you, you know, the more you increase that power, the more noise that you're increasing, increasing to that link. So because oh, you're amplifying everything, you're not just amplifying signal. You're also amplifying uh, noise. Yes, exactly. Oh, so that's that's counterintuitive. Right. So liken it to uh, people attempting to converse in a small conference room. You know, people, you know, tend to get louder and avoid, you know, having the conversation drowned out by surrounding individuals. So now. In an effort to get their point across, they end up shouting more, right? And obviously being counterproductive, you know, at the end. Well, I mean, there's a parallel to just plain old Wi-Fi networking, which is, generally speaking, you should be using the lowest radiated power that you can get away with and get the job done. That's that's kind of a fundamental, a design fundamental. Yeah, and and so then you end up saying, don't focus on power, focus on signal quality. So, for example, to extend your your example about Wi-Fi, if you put a, a Wi-Fi access point on the wrong side of a wall, and then you increase the power to have the signal go through the wall better, that is fundamentally the wrong approach. You want to put the antenna on the correct side of the wall reduce the power so that the wall is no longer interfering with the, the clients that you want to, you want to hit. Um, and, and you can have a better signal quality with less power output. Hmm. Now does, does power, how much power you need change if the satellite is directly overhead and you've got the least amount of atmosphere to go through as opposed to a satellite that's fairly close to the horizon, you've actually got more atmosphere to cut through. So, so I would tell you, um, you know, as PC mentioned previously, uh, typically all of our satellites are um, along the, uh, you know, the geo orbit. So typically it's, it's not that that contributes to the power consumption or increase. It's, it's the atmospheric condition. It's the clouds. It's the, it's the rain. It's the fog. It's, and sometimes it's dust, right? And, you know, some of our desert um, environments, um, those are more or less things that, you know, that sort of. Uh, that tend to influence uh, the power uh, requirements and consumption. Hmm. Okay. Okay. One more. One more story. There's something else I got to understand here. Now, I um, I used to use software that would tell me when a satellite I was interested in monitoring with my my ham radio set. Uh, the software would tell me when a particular satellite was going to be overhead, what the angle was or, or elevation, as we were talking about before, and, and how long that pass was going to be. And sometimes my radio and my antenna would be inside the coverage area, and sometimes not. Now, maybe we're talking mostly about geostationary satellites, and this is kind of a moot point, but but do you actually have to deal with the issue of orbiting satellites, the varying degrees of coverage they have as they pass overhead and so on? So, so I will tell you, back in the day when we used to use the, uh, the defense birds, um, they used to um, orbit in a sort of a figure eight configuration, right, where auto tracking, uh, hitting them at the right time was necessary. Um, uh, but nowadays that's really not uh, not necessary. Um, the sort of software that you're talking about, we have apps um, that allow you to do that now, uh, but those only work for the commercial birds. Uh, you're not going to find any of our defense birds on there 
or any of our uh, uh, classified systems on there. Why would that be? Why would you? (laughs) Information wants to be free. (laughs) Okay. Okay. So it's important here. We've we've kind of already talked about transponders. Um, So we talk about satellite coverage areas. Um, and, And I think, you know, what Evander is talking about is when you're on the ground looking up at the satellite, uh, you can see, or I'm up at the sky, you can see various satellites along in their orbit if you have you know, special apps and things like that on your phone and whatnot, and you can kind of see that from the like ground perspective. It's important to look at this from the satellite perspective too. If you're sitting on the satellite looking down at the Earth, that transponder, whichever one we're talking about uh, on, a, on an individual satellite, is focused in uh, a, a footprint on the earth. So one commercial satellite might be focused on North America, or it might even be focused really, really tiny on, on a San Diego. Um, and that is considered the satellite footprint or coverage area. If you're anywhere within that coverage area, you should be able to send and receive to that satellite transponder. Uh, If you're on the edge of the coverage area, just like you would expect any other radio system, the the quality of the, the, the signals on the edges of that footprint are not as good. So if you're sitting on the, the satellite looking down at the earth, if you're dead smack dead in the middle of, of that transponder coverage area, you'll get great signal quality. If you're on the edge, you might get less. If you flip that view to be on the ground, um, what that ends up looking like is if you're on the edge of the the coverage area, you might be pointing almost directly at the horizon, which means you might have more obstacles in your way. It's obviously a farther distance, you know, all those kinds of things that that contribute to satellite quality or excuse me, signal quality. Now, this is once again, uh, referring back to that administrative process called the SAR, um, this is why it is absolutely imperative to be accurate and to be concise, despite it being months in advance as to where you are going to be, because that is how the very smart guys up there at the SAT, uh, SATCOM engineering department really map out which beam or which coverage area is most appropriate for you, giving the other things that you are requesting. And again, sorry, satellite access request. Right. Yeah. So, so Evander, so you submit your satellite access request for, uh, for some, uh, some date in the future. You ask for, for everything you want, high bandwidth, all this other snazzy stuff, right? And <laughs> Absolutely. You get, you get your satellite access authorization back, and it says your elevation to, to the, uh, the satellite up there is three degrees. What is the audible uh, uh, expression of excitement, joy, frustration that, that you use when it says you have to point your dish at three degrees above the horizon? Do you mean after someone uses some sort of smelling salt to wake me up because <laughs> yeah. I've passed out? Yeah, but everybody needs to hear your audible expression of frustration. The first thing I'm going to do is sigh uh, relentlessly like, ah, this, this is disappointing because there's, there's no way – in God's green earth, unless I'm sitting at the very top of a mounting that I'm ever going to hit three degrees with, with, you know, cause you're, you're right at the edge of that satellite's coverage at that point. Right. Well, not that, uh, you know, the fact of the matter is, uh, at three degrees, you can put a boot in front of me and I, and I'd have difficulty clearing that <laughs> because <laughs> it's it. so okay. low. Okay. All right. Uh, 
that's an obstacle problem. <laughs> so, right. so all of that is tied to signal quality. That that's the name <laughs> of the game. We keep talking about that because that's what's most important. All those factors that are involved in signal quality. Uh, it's not about pushing more power, more power, more power. It's this the quality of that signal. And and if you get a if we get a satellite authorization that says we have some ridiculously low elevation, meaning the antenna is pointing kind of in the in the direction we really don't want it to it is less likely that we're going to be successful. It's less likely that we're going to have high throughput. Right. All of those factors that sit on top of it, right? Because just like uh, you know, any, any protocol that works in the OSI model, if the layer one is shaky, if it's not great, layer two is not going to be great. There's going to be a lot of errors. There's going to be a lot of correction having to happen. Uh, and then you know, that may bleed over to layer three, layer four. There may have to be... Um, you know, uh, retransmits or connection resets and all that kind of stuff. Hmm. Well, guys, we should move the conversation along to the different kinds of satellites and their orbits uh, and what that means for, for, for network design. So uh, it, it, within the last few years, there have been discussion, I want to say blue orbit, maybe blue, blue something or another. Anyway, it was, it was like an Amazon spinoff company. They were going to make this network. I think they're still planning to do so. Of, uh, of satellites that were going to be low earth orbiting satellites. They were going to blanket the globe with this and you were going to be able to get your broadband internet through that. But then there's other satellites that are, are stationary. They're uh, in a very high orbit and they look at a consistent disk of the earth um, and, and broadcast to that. You guys actually talked about some of these already. Can you walk us through the different satellites that are interesting for network communications and, uh, and the implications of each, depending on if they're orbiting or not, or et cetera. Sure, sure. So I'll take you through the orbits. So uh, so I'll comment on the uh, the most common ones and the ones that we employ uh, most frequently uh, within the DOD, uh, the first of which being the LEO, right? So the low Earth orbit. Um, so it commonly operates anywhere between 180 feet to 2,000 uh, kilometers. Um, it does orbit in a circular motion and direction. Um, now, some of the advantages is the high resolution because of its low altitude, uh, which render them the preferred um, orbit for imagery systems such as surveillance and weather. Um, they also have smaller antennas, so uh, they're typically cheaper, uh, which means that they also require less power and um, and require less less uh, resources. <clears throat> and now, these are the satellites when on the, in the movies, the uh, the guy stands there and he says, "Enhance." enhance what's happening is he's talking to the satellite getting, getting a close-up right absolutely you got it he's talking to a leo a leo satellite as we speak mm. <laughs> and and obviously the biggest perk and advantage to um to operate in any satellite within the leo is that low altitude means low latency right but of course uh like most things and you know and i mentioned before satcom is no different there are disadvantages right uh for, uh, for once uh i'm sorry for one they are harder to track um, than than some of the um, satellites in the higher orbits, um, and they were, um, and oftentimes the speed of the satellites alone make them difficult to track. So, and again, low Earth orbiting, it is in fact passing passing overhead. It, it is not stationary where you just aim and you're done. It, it is moving through the sky. Absolutely, and 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 just think of the low part being you know synonymous with the the altitude of it. Right. Low being yes, low yes. altitude. Right. 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 Um, and also, um, you know, some of the disadvantages that they have to 
in order in order to provide um, in most time global coverage, right? They have to work in large constellations, right? So constellations are the other satellites that they're communicating with in order to provide uh, that global uh, connectivity. Um, and that, in, in in most cases, uh, requires at least seventy satellites working in synchronization in order to provide that. So, so that's a lot, and that's a lot to manage. So, in other words, the satellites in this orbit are a part of a constellation, meaning it's kind of a mesh network where you're communicating with one satellite, but they're relaying data between each other to get data back down to the ground wherever it needs to go. Couldn't have said it better myself. Absolutely. Uh, okay, interesting. All right. Um, so next, um, and I'm going in ascending order, is the MEO, right? So it's the medium Earth orbit. Um, now, this one is considered semi-synchronous, right? Meaning that it's only partially in sync uh, with the Earth's natural rotation, right? Um, so it completes a rotation by once every 12 hours, right? Which means roughly twice a day, right? Now, it does cross over the same two spots on the equator each day, right? So like you were mentioning earlier, for synchronization sakes, right? If you were trying to communicate and you wanted to step out into this piece of land every day, twice a day, um, this would be the orbit that you would be communicating with, right? Now, um, the satellites are more consistent um, in comparison to the LEO um, orbit satellites uh, for planet considerations. Um, now, some of the advantages includes it does have higher, um, you know, altitude, roughly 22K um, above the Earth sea level. Um, they do not require as many satellites to provide global coverage um, in comparison to the LEO. And they also spend a little bit longer prolonged times um, over um, certain regions of the Earth. Typically, they'll they'll orbit in the same location for around six to ten hours. Um, they also have lower and improved look angles, uh, which make them more ideal for technologies such as GPS and uh, satellite phones such as uh, Iridiums. So... So Leo, uh, you mentioned I think seventy satellites to to make that full mesh. Right now, now as certain technologies improve, you know they may be able to reduce that. But 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 part of this is going to be they're so close to the Earth, just to have line of sight between each other, you'd need uh, you know that many to be able to to do the relays between as many satellites as it would take to get to all to get that global coverage. Uh, Mio, they're higher up off the ground. You've got you know the the Earth. You're further away from the Earth, and so you can see uh, more satellites without the Earth being in the way, and so you can get away with fewer satellites? Precisely. Okay, got it. Yeah, the higher you go, the more you can see. Got it, got it. Okay. With less satellites. Um, so really, so really, the only true disadvantage of this is, is, is as you start to, you know, to increase your altitude, latency uh, starts to increase with that as well. Because you said 22k now, we're we're quite a bit further away than the than the Leo, which are way closer. Right, right. Roughly, you know, you know it's roughly the the, uh, the Leo's operating roughly 10 percent of what the Mio, um, it's registered to uh, to operate in. So so yeah, that's a fair amount of distance increase, right? And um, so now the Heo, right, which is the high Earth orbit, um, it has the highest altitude, um, and you're talking about, you know, in excess of, you know, somewhere between 20. 26k to 35k uh, above sea level. Now, um, now it is a subset of the geo, right? Which is, you know, goes by a lot of names. You know, most commonly the geosynchronous orbit, um, which means that it's in the same lat and long as the equator. Now, um, you'll you'll occasionally hear the terms geosynchronous and geostationary um, incorrectly interchange, right? Um, understanding that at zero degrees inclination along the equator. 
um, you know, this renders the heel a geostationary because it's, it's, it's exactly aligned with that. Um, and it's also synchronized with the orbital rotation, which renders it geosynchronous. So it's always in the sky in the same place. Right, right. So, so recall what PC was, uh, was referring to, um, uh, previously, how it's always there, right? Not necessarily a, a reason for, um, having advanced auto tracking capabilities in most cases, right? Because it's going to be there. Okay. So, uh, again, geostationary and geosynchronous don't mean uh, exactly the same thing. Geostationary, it's above zero degrees, uh, the, above the equator is what it's pinned to. And geosynchronous, it, uh, you know, it's not moving through the sky. Well, no. Well, no, it moves, it moves in exact synchronization with yes. the Earth's yes, rotation. Yes, 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 yes. Right. 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 So it so, is synchronized to the Earth's rotation. So in, in effect, it's it's as if it's not moving, even though it's moving really bloody fast. <laughs> Precisely. Got it. Okay. And, and and then again, this high Earth orbit, it's the furthest away, so it's going to have the, the highest latency. Right. So so um, so some of the advantages that you have global coverage, right? Um, of course, excluding the North and South Poles, with only now you're talking three to four satellites, right? So now, so now this is you know ideal for obviously global coverage um, and for communication satellites. Um, but obviously, the disadvantage is not having you know observation on the poles, um, and as well, it does require bigger antennas, bigger amplifiers to reach some of these lengthy distances, and of course it does produce the greatest amount of latency, uh, typically ranging in excess of 600 milliseconds, which, you know, like, you know, like if you recall what I mentioned about the processing transponder, it's still pretty impressive given the distance that it's covering. Huh. My, my brain immediately said, well, why wouldn't we just stick a couple of them on either pole? And then, oh yeah, it's moving through space. You can't actually do that, can you? <laughs> oh well Ethan if we can solve all the world's problems in this uh, podcast uh... <laughs> well it just it just took me a second to, to get that it's like oh why wouldn't oh right because you can't they're 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 moving they're moving through space that wouldn't that wouldn't work you couldn't stick them on the the axial uh ends of the earth that that wouldn't be a thing that you could do and that's actually that's probably a really important distinction is that because the earth is rotating uh, the satellites, in order to, to, to follow the Earth, have to orbit exactly the same way as the Earth does. And so, therefore, it's traveling faster and orbiting faster than the Earth is or spinning faster than the Earth is. But actually keeping a satellite still would be really difficult with the gravitational pull of the Earth as it's rotating. So it's always going to be moving. Boy, uh- how do they keep? The, oh boy, that, that's a whole other conversation. Oh my goodness. Okay. Well, and, and so I just want to I just want to note that there's a link in the show notes to a great picture from Wikipedia that shows the Earth, the low Earth orbit, medium medium Earth orbit, and high Earth orbit, and the distance involved. Uh, it's it's worth looking at, especially if you've kind of been if your head's exploded based on some of this this discussion. <laughs> uh, it talks about and shows visually those differences. Now, uh, you guys that are using these sorts of satellite um, networks or constellations, as the case may be, 
do, do you have more choices at Leo versus Mio versus Hio? Uh, is any of those like you're more typically going to use one versus the other? Is it use case specific? Is it whatever constellation you can get airtime on? How does that work? Wow. I think, I think this is the first time where it's probably appropriate to say yes. <laughs> right. it, it's uh, but most uh, most typically it's use case based but we are uh larger players in the heo orbit uh just based on uh the nature of our operations and our mission sets so so this is kind of a good transition maybe to some of the, the differences between commercial and military satellite services is that, yeah, is yeah, that yeah. What you're getting? yeah, I would I would love to hear that because uh, you mentioned Iridium earlier. Um, some people are familiar with uh, satellite networks that like like HughesNet in North America that they're using because they live out in the woods and that's the only option they have. And yeah, and so on. Yeah, let's talk through that. So I'll I'll, I'll kind of just cover some of the names and then Evander can can go through uh, in more detail. But Inmarsat uh, is, is a big one, and if you think of like cruise ships, if you think of people with yachts, uh, which I'm sure all the listeners here have yachts, um, <laughs> of course, they they can often receive global commercial satellite coverage through a company called Inmarsat, or or uh, there's another technology called a BGAN um, that is really high cost. You're paying multiple dollars per minute of access and your rate you're talking about anywhere from 56k to you know definitely under a meg um you know for some of the smaller systems but it's really really expensive commercial capabilities that anybody can can buy and it's through these various different satellites some of them are low earth orbit some of them are, are medium and high um iridium was it was a it was initially in a, a purely commercial play, uh, and then the military got involved as the company Iridium started to fail, uh, and, and the military is now a big player in Iridium because of uh, the amount that we use it for um, essentially like uh, first-in capabilities of the first person on the ground with no equipment, no big satellite terminals, might have an Iridium phone where they can talk anywhere in the world because of those low Earth, low earth orbit satellites, uh, but it's much lower bandwidth. Uh-oh. You want to talk about? Well, just a quick question. Um, uh, my wife and I are big hikers, and sometimes we're out in the the wilderness with something like a device that, or the device that can talk to satellites, and you can get text messages out or send an SOS. Would it use something like uh, the Iridium network or Inmarsat? Maybe. I don't know if you guys happen to know. I, I don't happen to know those specific services, but definitely it's that it's that set of of, of satellites and that kind of those capabilities that it's it's using. Um, there's a lot of those kinds of transponders that are that are communicating up there uh, with the low Earth orbit, and and that's where a lot of the commercial players are really kind of focusing. Is how can I take the satellite technology that's either there and rent space on that existing satellite? or launch my own satellites into that orbit in order to deliver maybe low bandwidth uh, text message kind of capabilities um, or, you know, access for yachts, as I was saying, since I really like yachts. Apparently. <laughs> um, and, and provide that to people that, that want to pay, you know, a certain amount of money for that global coverage. Right. And, uh, and Pete, I'll take up the next one. And, and really uh, VSAT, um, they arguably represent uh probably our most network centric satcom systems, right? Like you want to define VSAT real quick. Right. So, so it stands for a very small aperture terminal, right? And it comes in three variants, right? So we have the small, medium and large. 
Um, now, however, the large is the only variant that is capable of accessing the two access methods that, that, that PC mentioned earlier, that being the time division or the frequency division, uh, multiple access, um, of course, without the aid of additional equipment. Um, so uh, they, you know, I mentioned network centric. I believe, and PC, tell me if you, uh, if you agree um, that, that, that introducing these technologies really um, allowed the, the, the network topology uh, to really flourish as TDMA seems to be more aligned with deep, uh, with DMVPN, um, you know, because of its on-demand nature and its relatively low cost. Um, and whereas FDMA was sort of dedicated for higher data rates and, and designed to facilitate more uh, dedicated connectivity. So, so this is SATCOM system that I think really attempted to bridge the gap between SATCOM guys and network guys on the backside. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with that. And uh, if you look at some of the modems, like uh, Viasat has uh, makes a lot of these kinds of modems. Um, the modems do IP. They do um, some level of routing protocol. Um, so they can really, they're starting to try and blend layers one, two, and three in a lot of this equipment, which that may be a whole nother podcast that I completely disagree with. Blending layer three with layer two, for example. Uh, <laughs> I'm a staunch believer that let modems be modems and let routers be routers. When you try and turn a modem into a router, it's just not going to route well. I mean, that's just kind of the the, the bottom line. Um and that's a that's a whole nother podcast episode, maybe. But uh, <laughs> the, 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 so. the very small aperture terminals are really focused on getting those higher bandwidth uh, things in a mobile capacity. So can you pack it up, put it in a storage unit, ship that storage unit on an airplane or on a ship or whatever to another location, unpack it and set it up in 30, 45 minutes, an hour, that kind of thing. Um you're not talking about a large aperture terminal, which would be, uh, you know, huge satellite dishes that you see at, uh, you know, certain office buildings or things like that, where they're where they're always there, they're not moving, and they're they're able to handle a lot more bandwidth. These are more mobile uh, in terms of being able to pack them up and send them wherever you need it, and then set them up uh, right. quickly and easily. Certainly designed to be more expeditionary in nature. Got it. Okay. Right. And and just to tie in a little bit on the commercial side again, uh, DirecTV and SiriusXM, those are two uh, examples of, of, you know, you can find a lot of information online about their kind of architecture in a, in a general sense and how they use satellite constellations to deliver the services. Um, there was a lot of talk when XM Radio first started, how they had launched two new satellites, one called Rock and the other called Roll. Uh, and they were providing specific uh, radio, satellite radio coverage for the continental U.S. So that footprint was specific to the continental U.S., but you could drive from California to uh, New York and never change your, your radio frequency because it was the, you were always within that footprint. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's very tightly focused on North America. I happen to live up in New Hampshire, which is you know, way up in the Northeast for those of you folks that don't, uh, aren't familiar with continental U.S. geography. And XM radio for me is right on the fringe where if I dip down into a valley, eh, I'm not picking it up. I get dropouts. But, but yeah, it talks about just that signal quality right at the very edge of their footprint. 
right? right. And and both of those services are different than the ones that that the military, a different kind of topology than the than the military might use because those services are really focused on on I'm broadcasting the same signal to all users in this footprint. And when you're switching from one Sirius XM radio station, I'm doing air quotes here, station to another, what you're doing is you're, you're switching frequency that that is broadcast on or, or you're switching that um, component that is lashed on to the, the carrier wave. Uh, same thing with direct TV. So there's very little uplink from the radio itself in your car, for example, to the satellite, which is why you might have a, a really tiny antenna that, that looks like a shark fin or something on your car. And, and it's, it doesn't look like a satellite dish that, that you have on your house or on a big building. You're not rolling around with a giant satellite dish on your Prius. Um, it's because it's really focused on receive and that's it. Uh, because the, the transponder is always sending those, the, the, that content down. Same thing with direct TV. Uh, they have more satellites that are out there, uh, but they're focused in a bunch of different areas around the continental U S and expanding. Uh, but they're focused on downlink stuff in the military application. We want both uplink and downlink. We want as symmetric of an, uh, of, of a uplink and downlink as possible. Uh, if we get one mega symbol up, we want one se- mega symbol down. Um, that becomes a, really an important factor when you start talking about throughput at the TCP level. As you know, um, if you can't get your acknowledge packets out, your throughput's going to go down. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, you know, the, the, the notion of being in a car and um, dealing with satellite communications makes me think about moving. Now, you guys in the in the military, you must have situations where either you need that bi-directional communication but you're on a plane or you're on some vehicle that's moving across the land or or a ship is that what kind of issues does that bring up when you're in a moving vehicle dealing with satcom well so you know so personally i feel that uh you know that there are several constraints with dealing with a with a mobile command and control system um i.e the lack of antenna gain the insufficient power source um you know as a result from using a vehicle battery, uh, the persistent moving in the tracking requirement, you know, associated with online, you know, I'm sorry, with an on the move system will, will always hinder the capabilities and objectives for the network and the underlying C2 services that we're expected to provide. Right. Uh, so for instance, um, many of the applications that would be traversing a SATCOM on a move system require high speed, low latency pipes, uh, which are obviously extremely difficult to provide or guarantee over these systems. Um, you know, so in essence, this ultimately results in insufficient or substandard performance for these services, right? Which, which, which really has a significant impact on the operational excess. Uh, so, so for context, um, try, you know, try imagining to complete a VTC at, let's say, 256K while simultaneously trying to complete a voice call, right? while passing through grid coordinates um, via a chat, you know, via a chat service like Merck chat, right? Across a shared two megabits downlink, right? While moving in excess of 40 miles an hour across, a, you know, a terrain, you know, challenge desert mass, right? And now, now I know, you know, to me, it sounds like a scene out of Mission Impossible, right? But, but, but this is the reality when trying to employ, you know, a SATCOM on a move system within a tactical vehicle, which is something that PC, you know, and I have been, have been charged to facilitate, you know, 
you know, a time or two, you know, you know a few years ago. So, um, so I think it really does a disservice and it's something that is going to need to be coordinated, you know, at nauseum with network guys in order to set expectations as to what their user experience will be. I, I think I think even everybody listening to this can understand the plight of the network engineer who has to set expectations for the right. user on, on on what things are going to look like. And when someone comes to you and says, "I want to do a video teleconference, high def, 720p, 1080p, <laughs> uh, at 40 miles an hour with someone that is in another country or another continent." Uh, you start shaking your head and, and cursing out loud and stomping your feet, and then go and try and figure out how to how to make something happen. I mean, is that even possible? Because the scenario, you, there's so many variables. Is that even possible to pull off something like that? Uh, I I would say, and, and you can you can definitely correct me, Evander. I would say the 1080p version of that is not. <laughs> yes, yes. It, it is not possible at this moment in time. Uh, it is possible to do that uh, to do a video teleconference though on the move in with, with all those uh, constraints that we were talking about. Um, right. We have that equipment to do that. Uh, and in a lot of cases, we, we do it on aircraft. Um, you could think uh, one example might be if the commander of central command is flying a group of himself and a, or herself and a group of people to a humanitarian assistance disaster relief uh, mission that is in another country. If they get on an airplane and they're flying to that country, they probably need to continue coordinating with the State Department, with the, the host nation, with a lot of these other entities. And so they'll put a mobile command and control system on that aircraft that is actually fairly high bandwidth that can that they can use and do video chat. They can do audio phone calls. They can do uh, you know a text chat and email and things like that from the aircraft for maybe a staff of 10 or 15. Um, the expectations are they're sitting on an airplane knowing that they're on an airplane. So they, they get right. that they, they're not going to get a, you know, an amazing connection, but they can make it happen. Yeah. Well, yeah, but Ethan, I, I'll give you the, I give you the short answer. Yes. Anything is possible. If you have a high enough priority, uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> that's what it all boils down to priority. Uh. Got it. Okay. Well, well, guys, this is probably a good place for us to end the show. This has been brilliant. I have thoroughly enjoyed this conversation, learned a lot uh, chatting with you too. So now, are either you guys uh, social where you want to share a Twitter handle or a blog or anything like that that you want to promote where people could follow you or catch up with you, uh, starting with UPC? Um, I, I've got my LinkedIn page in the show notes, and that, that's kind of the, the only place I, I really have anything. Fantastic. What about you, Evander? Uh, ditto for me. Uh, LinkedIn I'm, I'm, I'm is the best place to get me. Great. Well, again, thanks for both of you for sharing the time, uh, PC, for, for proposing the show and bringing Evander in. This has been uh, great stuff, uh, really fantastic. And thanks to all of you that were listening today. And uh, heads up, we have a new site called Ignition. Ignition is a members-only site with videos, ebooks, articles, and more that you can't get from us anywhere else. You can sign up for free. That's fine. But if you sign up for a premium membership, you do support us directly, and we appreciate that. You can check that out at ignition.packetpushers.net. We have a lot of other shows in the Packet Pushers Network these days. For example, we've got IPv6 Buzz. That's got Ed Horley, Scott Hogan, Tom Coffeen. These are all published authors with strong, heavy expertise in IPv6. Give them a listen. Full Stack Journey with Scott Lowe, of course, and then uh, Data Knots has got me and Chris Wall breaking down silos and talking to you about things going on with networking, but then lots of other stuff, too. And by the way, we are on Spotify now. Just search for Packet Pushers. 
Last but not least, remember that too much networking would never be enough.